Welcome to a brand new episode of Cold Chinese Food. I am your host, Aisha Redux. Today our topic is American Islamophobia. I'm very honored to have on our guest today, Mr. Khaled Beydoun. I guess this topic is somewhat personal for me. I grew up in an Islamic household. I'm a second generation American. I'm Guinean American. My paternal lineage is heavily Muslim. Uh, they're in fact imams. <laughs> uh, my father's side, my last name Diaby is just, uh, it's recognized as, as being directly kind of linked to, to Islamic holiness. He is a Detroit native, a professor, a lawyer, an author, a speaker, a scholar of Islamic studies and Islamophobia. In 2018, he published this powerful, excellent, and very relevant book, American Islamophobia. He has a really big social media presence that keeps thousands of us informed. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Yeah, so I grew up in, I'm from, uh, I was born in Egypt. I was, my mom is Egyptian, my father's Lebanese. Uh, we came here when I was really young. We eventually settled in Detroit, which is, you know, home to a very large Arab and uh, Muslim American population. Um, and growing up in Detroit really politicized me in, in, in a myriad of ways. It, you know, politicized me to issues that are relevant to, uh, you know, Muslims globally, Muslim Americans, but also people of color. Detroit is home to the biggest, you know, the most concentrated black population in the United States. It's a city that has, uh, you know, really endured turbulent economic and political and definitely racial sort of chapters in its history. And, you know, all of that put together. And I grew up in a single parent household. My mother raised me and my two siblings. Um, you know, we, we, we struggled with um, money. We moved a ton of times, um, you know, growing up in the city really made me uh, socially and politically conscious at a young age. Um, that sort of directed me mm. to the kind of work that I do today. That that's that's really amazing. It it gave you an edge to be able to to connect, I guess to to talk and and just kind of like just a kind of easy relatability that I get in in hearing you and seeing what you post and getting a sense of who you are that I don't think I've ever really gotten when it comes to Islam being being uh being represented and spoken out about. No, no, I appreciate that. Thanks so much for that. I really appreciate that. Sure. What is Islamophobia? Because how is it developed into the monster that it is over time? Because for me, I remember growing up, my mother watching a lot of like espionage action movies that circulated around very comfortable terrorist stereotypes. And I vividly remember those movies disappearing after September 11th. Those those are those are kind of like my first my first introduction to to kind of watching something that that wasn't right, but it being just very comfortably displayed. I guess tell us what Islamophobia is and and what the roots are. Yeah, so you know, like you growing up in in the in in the United States and being Muslim and you know being a, a person of color. Like we we watch movies, we listen to music, we watch TV, we listen, you know, we watch the news, obviously. And the only images and representations we see of Muslims are typically negative, 
right? And they're um, after 9-11, like you mentioned, uh, the representations are typically associated with terrorism. Um, so after 9-11, obviously, you had the establishment and the expansion of this war on terror, you know, this witch hunt to go after the quote-unquote terrorists who were always brown, they were always Muslims, and they always, you know, believed uh, like I did. So, you know, as, as an activist and later on as an academic, I, I wanted to make sense of this, this rising form uh, of bigotry that was being exacted and inflicted uh, upon Muslims. And it eventually, you know, came to be known as Islamophobia. And, you know, obviously with the rise of Trump, Islamophobia became sort of a, you know, a central racial justice or social justice issue. But I was still dissatisfied with the way it was being uh, defined and framed. It was largely being defined as this kind of, you know, a rational form of bigotry that was coming from um, bigots, right? Or hate mongers, like, you know, very fringe sort of actors. But it wasn't talking about what the state was doing, you know, in terms of the law, the policy, um, the actual behavior from government that was, um, you know, endorsing and um, uh, embellishing the kind of violence Muslims were experiencing. In the same way we talk about, you know, like racism versus institutionalized racism, right? We can think about Islamophobia uh, in the same way. So, uh, you know, I wrote a series of academic articles and then I wrote the book you mentioned um, to try to make sense uh, of this sort of Leviathan of Islamophobia that was harming Muslims across the, not only the country, but the world. Tell us a little bit more how the Trump administration in particularly, in particular, made things worse. You know, it made, it made things worse, but in some ways it, it sort of, you know, just continued what was happening before. The way it made it worse was that it made it, it made Islamophobia in the same way that it made uh, anti-Black racism or xenophobia far more explicit, explicit and far more conspicuous with the kind of language and rhetoric uh, that Trump was using. Obviously, the, uh, the president at the very top of governmental power uh, that made it okay. It legitimized uh, hate mongers and racists on the street, in cities and in towns to say things like the N-word, to say things like, you know, Muslims are terrorists, to say things like, uh, we need to get rid of these illegals. You know, illegal became synonymous for Latinx identity. Uh, so it made things worse in that way, that it was okay to be explicitly racist again in the same way that it was for a long time in this country's history, right? I um, mean, obviously, policies like the Muslim ban made it really damaging. Um, obviously, you see the kind of policy changes uh, Trump made in places like Israel with regard to um, the way it sort of bludgeoned the experience of Palestinians. You know, he called African countries shithole countries. Mm -hmm. That kind of language tied to policy. Um, but it, it was kind of the same old thing. It was the same old story because Trump effectively just extended the war on terror machine that existed before him, right, in terms of surveillance, in terms of droning, um, you know, in terms of using um, electronic and technological sort of, uh, you know, cutting edge software to keep tabs on activists, whether it be Muslim activists or Black Lives Matter activists. Um, so Trump made it more clear and explicit, uh, but the machine in the system was ready there for him mm. to capitalize on. Yeah, that's that definitely something that became super real to me, as you were mentioning activists and <laughs> people like me who are micro activists <laughs> who are still kind of being <laughs> who are still kind of being watched out here. It's really yep. scary and jarring. What do you think can be done by the next administration to to salvage? Like, what needs to be done? What work yeah. are you doing? 
and people people working well, alongside you. you so so the way the way I think about it, right? And I think I, I often get in trouble with like centrists for saying this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Um we can't think about progressive sort of racial or social justice as narrowly just a response to Trump, right? We're sitting on, you know, a country with centuries-long history of uh systematic racism, enslavement, stripping agency from poor people, uh, you know, decimating. Uh, the the lives of indigenous people, uh, stripping any kind of you know access uh, to routine life existence for immigrants, right? So this this took place bef- before Trump. So I think what what this coming administration has to do is to be honest with this country's history mm. of racial inequality, uh, and then I think it has to sort of you know empower and create opportunity for those on the lowest rungs of society, right? It's not enough to bring in a black woman as a vice president. It's not enough to sort of, you know, place people of color in, in token leadership roles to show that, hey, we're diverse and, hey, we're, we're a representative government. I think that any administration is only as good as, as the way it empowers the sort of the most marginalized and stigmatized segments of society. If poverty in the black or the Latinx community is still at 80% with Biden um, four years after his administration, then how progressive is he, in fact? You know what I mean? That's that's the question. And I and I try to remain, I guess, optimistic and, and positive of it. But is this is there is there progress actually being made or is it just different people showing up? I think it's the, I think it's the way you think about progress, right? I think that mm. Be, be, being older, right? I think for me, being older now, I, I've just kind of, you know, maybe being Muslim too, you kind of you kind of just embrace the fact that, you know, progress, especially in a capitalistic country, has to be incremental. And being satisfied with incremental progress, um, I think, you know, feels like that might be enough in the grand scheme of things. But also the spiritual person in me, you know, says that, in the Muslim in me says... Mm-hmm maybe I shouldn't expect perfection and utopia in this in this lifetime, right? We, sh- we should strive for it. We should fight for it. But I think that's that's where, you know, that's that's where the place of faith comes in, is that I think it's our obligation to fight for, you know, equi- equity and justice as best we can with the qualifier that we can achieve full-fledged equality and justice in this, in this world, in this dunya. Wow. Speaking of, you know, being spiritual man as composed and spiritual and educated of a man as you are tell us this one thing about islamophobic practice that truly upsets you and something that you can't even just like stuff that you can't rationalize as ignorance and it's just plain evil and what really gets you i think what really gets me i'll say this like bullying right like bullying young kids because you're from new york right yeah yeah, so you're from New York, and obviously, like, Islam is deeply embedded in the sort of demographic tapestry of New York City, right? Places like Harlem, Brooklyn, you have really rich and vibrant Muslim communities of all of all types, right? Mm-hmm. African, Arab. Really so everywhere. Really everywhere. I'm in the Bronx. and I used to come to the Bronx when I was young to box. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, that's why I get the East Coast vibes. I'm like, you know what? This guy has some East Coast vibes. There you go. You've been to the Bronx. Yep, that says, BX, a yep. that uh, says a lot. That says a lot. Yeah, but places like Detroit, New York, mm-hmm. where Islam is visible, 
you know, our experience has been fortunate, but when you go to smaller towns in this country and Muslim students are far and few between, whether it's a majority white suburb or whether it's a rural area, bullying is a real issue, right? People are being picked on for, you know, how they dress, for the food they bring in for lunch, for what their names are. You know, mm-hmm. young people are forced to change their names from like Ali to Al or, you know, Mohammed to Mike mm-hmm. um, in those kinds of places. So so bullying of young people um, really gets to me. Um, you know, kids are going to be kids are going to be idiots. But that but that just shows like a real lack of uh, responsibility from the authority of schools. You really have to step in. I, I agree. And I guess one thing that I guess differs with me in my Islamic, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, experience growing up is the fact that we are African Muslims. We experienced Islamophobia, I guess, on milder levels when it comes to just being being attacked. For me, it, it you know what what got me a lot had to do with microaggressions. I'm sorry, microexpressions when, you know, when people would find out that I was Muslim or you know my family was Muslim, it'd be very much like, oh yeah, you know, and I grew up Muslim. Their face would be like. It, it, they would react as if if I told them like I just came out of jail or something, and yeah, it, it was just it was just so disappointing to me. And it was in those moments that I would realize that I would just kind of start looking down on these people, quite frankly, yeah. and just like just kind of realizing that as much education or worldliness as someone has you know, it doesn't they're not exempt of of having these these feelings of you know bigotry and I always just kind of chalked it up I used to chalk it up to ignorance but really it's just I I, I don't even know <laughs> it's not a lack of education it's a, it's a lack of something I found myself reading your book and having emotional reactions <laughs> and I'm an emotional viewer I guess when I watch movies usually with books it's a little bit more subtle but I, I was very emotional like I was angry I was angry reading your book and I appreciated a a lot that it was layered with your experiences and a lot of like narratives and your thoughts that kind of came together with the facts. I didn't I didn't expect that. So tell us about, I guess, your experience writing this book. Yeah, I think one, one thing for me when I decided to write to write this book is that in some ways it was a response to like all the books I read uh, as a youngster about Islam and of Muslims that were written largely by white men. Right. And there's this sort of, there's this sort of positionality that when non-Muslims write a book, they, they're sort of distanced from the subject matter. Right. So it becomes almost emotionless. Mm. Right. And it's sort of like the external sort of purveyor having this voyeuristic um, sort of, relationship with the Muslims and with the religion that they're studying, right? It becomes almost lifeless. So I'm kind of a private person, right? Like for me, I I don't like to divulge too much of my private life in whether it be social media or whatever it might be. But I guess the the reason why I decided to sort of inject my personal story into into this book in ways that I'm still kind of uncomfortable with, to be (laughs) honest with you, is because I wanted to sort of counter that longstanding tradition of outsiders telling our story, Uh. right? I thought it was important to sort of give texture to the cases, the facts, the law, the policy, the history in ways that only an insider could. 
Okay. And one way to sort of resonate with the readers to show that, hey, you know, you're getting angry by this, you're getting an emotional reaction by this. This is exactly how I felt when I was ex experiencing this, right? So I wanted to stand sort of alongside the reader for that emotional journey when they were reading the book. And the second reason was, I'll, you know, just I'll, I'll be fully honest with you. I, I, I was writing the book after my, my father passed away, right? So I was just kind of in a, you know, a really difficult emotional space um, where the book in some ways was, you know, kind of an escape from that surrounding reality of losing my father and dealing with uh, the trauma of a lost parent for the first time in my life. Um, and I, I guess the the emotion sort of seeped in in ways that I didn't anticipate when I was running, when I was writing, I'm sorry. I think that's what's beautiful about writing is that, you know, in part writing is like technical craft, but the other dimension is just sort of this, this emotional sort of journey that is both cathartic and, you know, impassioned in ways that you don't anticipate until you write. I'm a writer and I lost my father as well seven, seven years ago. And in my book... <laughs> I, I guess I didn't realize how how gut wrenching and and vulnerable it is to kind of put your yourself out there. So there's parts of my my book when I when I I'm like I, I can't believe people know this about me. Yeah. But you know it kind of creates a connection, and that's what's important. There is this clip of Senator McCain mm -hmm. that was floating around after he died. And it was a clip of him, like, I guess, on the campaign trail. And he was dismissing this Islamophobic hillbilly lady who kind of shouted, you know, he's an Arab, he's an Arab, you know, when she was <laughs> she was referring to Obama. And then McCain, like, heroically snatches the mic and, you know, cut yeah. the mic. And, you know, like, you know, he responds to it. He's like, he's not an Arab. And like everyone, you know, he gets lauded for it. And I remember seeing a post on your page and you pointed out the very glaring fault in McCain's response that yeah. a lot of us had missed, including myself, which was that was not the, the appropriate way to counter it. So I kind of want you to get into these things that we miss and how kind of Islamophobia kind of sometimes goes over our head. I remember watching that, right? I mean, I was, it was, you know, uh, during the presidential campaign, uh, you know, McCain is kind of this, he's a Republican, you know, back in the day when Republicans were still somewhat sane, right? Before the rise <laughs> of Trump, <laughs> you know, this kind of like lauded war hero. And I think for all intents and purposes, a good man, right? I think mm -hmm. that, you know, McCain wasn't this villain. I disagreed with him politically. But he was still a good man. He was at this, um, you know, I guess, town hall. I think it was in Milwaukee, right? Or somewhere in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in the Midwest, I think. Yeah, and he's running around. And uh, this older lady, like you said, <laughs> asked him a question. Um, and his response when she said he's an Arab, he said, no, he's not. He's a good yeah, man. Yeah, that was the response. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, everybody was like loving on him <laughs> for that response. Even after he passed away a couple of years yeah. ago, people that scene to, to show you, hey, this is an example of how good a man McCain was, right? And again, I'm not saying he wasn't a good man. Allah he's passed away. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that he conflated being Arab with not being good just perpetuates the stereotype that Arabs vis-a-vis -vis Muslims, vis-a-vis -vis Middle Easterners, anybody associated with this like sort of Orientalist region that we know of as the broader Arab slash Muslim world, is inherently sort of, you know, is inherently um, 
bankrupt morally in some way, in evil and un-American. So what McCain should have said is it doesn't matter that he's Arab. Yeah. You know, or it doesn't matter that he's Muslim. You know, um, he didn't say that, um, which means two things. You know, he didn't know how to say that, wasn't literate in a way that he should have responded uh, in the most optimal way. But the fact that the, the, the public just embraced him in the way they did just demonstrated, just demonstrates how deep-seated this notion that Arab identity in and of itself, right, in and of itself is, is, is somehow um, demonic or violent is so widely, widely uh, pervasive, even amongst leftists, right? I think that liberals didn't even, even lauded him for saying that. So Islamophobia or Arabophobia, however you want to call it, is not something that is just endemic to the right. It's something that is perpetuated by leftists as well. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's kind of what I wanted to highlight with that because it's a moment where I caught myself. It wasn't until I read your post, like it didn't even make, make sense that flew over my head. I want to get a little bit into like America's black history of Islam. I remember you wrote this article that I really loved. I posted it a few times. I think it was for, I forgot, I think it was for The Root you wrote. And it's something that I posted, I think, during Ramadan a couple times. And it was how the enslaved Africans still practice Ramadan. It's also stuff that I had learned just sparingly in textbooks as a kid. A lot of the first Africans were Muslims. And that stuff, that stuff that I didn't know, that stuff that a lot of people didn't know. I, I'd like for you, for you to share a little bit about that Islamic history in American history, black history. It's key for Muslim Americans and especially non-black Muslim Americans to understand the history of Islam in the United States and, and to know that it's, it's rooted directly in the experience of enslaved um, you know, Muslims in antebellum America. And when I, when I was coming up um, as, as a scholar, as an academic, um, I, I was I, I was really intentional about using social media. Back then, it was like Twitter and writing mm -hmm. op-eds. Mm -hmm. I'm not on Twitter anymore. It's, it's really toxic these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> you use Twitter? I, I've, I've never been a Twitter person. I just felt it. I'm like, I'm not yeah. going to do that because I'll get sucked in. And I know how I am. <laughs> It's so like bleak. Yeah. But back but back then it wasn't as much. I mean, maybe, maybe yeah. it's a it's a new development. But yeah, for me, you know, especially being being Arabi and being, you know, somebody who comes from I myself am I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was two years old. Um I, I really want I felt like it was my responsibility in some ways to sort of develop consciousness and to celebrate this rich history of Islam that started even before the United States was a sovereign and independent uh, country, right? The fact that 15 to 25% uh, of the enslaved Africans that were brought here and sold on auction blocks that were you know, forced to work um, in plantations that were bound to the most sort of inhuman sort of um, circumstances between slave master and slave code, that they were Muslims and that they continued to be Muslims when they were put through these really, really difficult and, and evil situations and that it was beautiful to me when I studied it really closely to see how for these enslaved um, Africans, 
Islam became a liberation theology, right? It was mm. it was more than just a religion. It was sort of this this space of um, empowerment that provided them with the inspiration, but also like the divine law to fight against um, this brutal oppression coming from um, not only slave masters, but legitimized by American law, right? I mean, it was American law that said that blackness was property and Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, black folk were only three-fifths of a human being. Islam was a body of law that countered all of that, that I thought that was beautiful. Um, And that comes directly from the African-American experience um, that is tied to what we see happening in the United States today. So um, that's definitely a big part of the book and, you know, a a big part of, um, you know, that inspired me to want to become a racial justice advocate. And I mean, it's amazing how much everything intertwines and, (laughs) you know, even for me being, being an African, being a black woman in America. I was very surprised to learn in the book, you said like the fastest growing like demographic of Muslims are Latinx people. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I bet a lot of us are curious because this is something that I, I, I've seen growing up. I had friends that had, you know, Puerto Rican fathers that were Muslim. And I always thought it was, I, I just didn't understand where it came from. <laughs> because I guess the, the Latino population is, is usually Catholic in, in, in the States. To what is that attributed? I think, you know, I haven't studied this closely, but what I have read, I think a couple of factors are salient. The first factor is you have large Latinx populations in, in parts of the country, which are developing really rapidly. So places like big cities in Texas, for instance, Dallas, Houston, and it's it's important to note that both places like Dallas and Houston are some of the fastest growing Muslim hubs. So the fact that there are mosques sprouting up and Muslim populations growing side by side by you know uh, Mexican populations and Central American populations that are growing in those cities, there's a lot of intimacy. There's a lot of interaction between those two communities, who are both obviously being demonized um, by you know the, the Trump administration in distinct ways where I think that shared experience of political stigmatization sometimes breeds interconnectivity, right? And it it kind of brings, Mm -hmm. um, it's brought Latinx people closer to Islam, um, especially because Islam is kind of, I mean, to be honest with you, Islam is viewed as a non-white religion, right? Where Christianity in some ways is sort of cloaked with whiteness that it, it appeals to a lot of younger Latinx people who are, who have a stronger racial justice consciousness. I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think a second, I think a second big part of it, uh, to be honest with you, is that especially post 9-11, Islam has politically emerged into a, you know, an identity of resistance, right? Beyond just a religious identity, it's an identity that is vilified by the by the state, but as a consequence of being vilified by the state, it's it's furnished young people with a platform to resist what the state is doing. And that that's proved to be really appealing for um, not only Latinx folks who convert to Islam, but a whole host of individuals who weren't born into Islam that you know want to adopt a more sort of um, politicized identity, mm-hmm. um, which is good in some ways, but it it can be bad because Islam is more than just political; it's obviously also spiritual yes, too. Yes, so, yes, yes, yes. Um, 
But inshallah, people can evolve to embrace both. I was just talking to someone about this earlier. The connection between like black nationalism and and men in jail, Muslim and, and Islam, is is always really interesting to me. It almost like turned into you know like somewhat of a stereotype. Like, you know, men go to jail and they come out Muslim. <laughs> and yeah, and I wonder if you know, like you said, if politically charged or if it's just just that experience of solitude and and reflection what breeds you know uh, you know an affinity and a connection to wanting to discover what is your take on that no so that that is institutional right so there's real sort of political and practical precedent that gave rise to the prison context um you know being a catalyst for muslim awakening and reawakening right and that is that is the Nation of Islam, the organization that you mentioned, which in the 50s and the 60s was really intentional about rehabilitating black men that were put through the carceral system, right? I mean, look, in this country um, lies for a long time and says that prison is a place where, you know, former criminals become rehabilitated um, to go back into society and become functioning members of society. That isn't the case. I mean, you, you could read, I don't know, you know, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow and realize that prison is a more is a place more for modern enslavement than rehabilitation. The Nation mm-hmm. of Islam, however, which I laud, right? I celebrate the Nation of Islam for a series of reasons. One of them is they were able to hone in on the prison context as mm. a space in a medium to build up men who were broken by society, right? And I want to shout out my friend Spirit, who's a law professor at the Thurgood uh, Marshall School of Law in Texas. He, he closely researches uh, the Nation of Islam uh, in the prison context, and, the, and Muslims in the prison context. But that is the legacy of the Nation of Islam, starting in the 50s, is that they use the prisons to um, create spaces to build back, to build up black men through religion, not only Malcolm X, but a whole host of people um, that came functioning members of society after they've left prison. So they 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 deserve all the credit for that. Wow, thank you for that. I, I definitely needed to make that connection. And I, I feel like I'm going to be studying a little bit more about that, just kind of learning about that connection. What? How do you feel about the future of <laughs> <laughs> Islam? Like through like, you know, the first generation, Muslim Muslim kids here and, and what's going on with this country, how how things are being internalized how the bigotry of the administration affected them. Do you see hope in, in, in what's being created in the youth and the movement with Islam as much as you probably, you've seen like, you know, black lives matter and things of this nature. Like how, how do you, how do you see, how do you see the future? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I've, I've been spending a lot of time these days, like researching like big tech and big tech surveillance um, are you familiar with this, like this phenomenon of surveillance capitalism? Do you know, have you watched the social dilemma? Oh uh, yes, I did. I did. I, I, I yeah. watched that and I was horrified. Yeah. Hor- horrific stuff. Right. And if you want to be more horrified, read this book called the age of surveillance capitalism. It, it, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm really sort of concerned about, I'm concerned for two reasons. And then I'll, then I'll circle back to the hope, but the, the two reasons I'm concerned is it's a lot easier now for, 
you know, nefarious state actors to keep tabs on on activists and even micro activists like you (laughs) (laughs) who, um, you know, might say something that is oppositional or might do something that is perceived as radical or revolutionary because it's easy for them to track our virtual footprints. Right. Not only to track our virtual footprint, but we're giving them everything. We're Mm -hmm. giving them. Um, by way of them mining our data and then um, knowing what it is we're interested in, um, the kind of plate, the kind of products we're buying, so on and so forth. So that's really scary, to be honest with you. The second, the second really frightening thing on the other side is, you know, I, I love the energy and the sort of spirit of young activists, but I don't like this emerging culture where people are skipping paying their dues, right? And by paying their dues is people aren't doing the work. They're not spending time with the books. They're not Mm. spending the time to study what it is they're talking Uh, about. You know uh, what I mean? And I think it's really important for whether it be, uh, you know, an activist or whether it be an advocate or somebody who has a big social media presence, who's an influencer, um, who speaks on issues. And I love when they do, but to at least know what they're talking about as best they can. Um, and I see a lot of sloppiness on that front, to be honest with you, that is really concerning because, you know, as Muslims, but also as, as, as people of color, uh, if one of us messes up, the entire lot is thrown under the bus, right? Like we don't have the same, you know, margin of error um, that white folks do. And that's just reality. You know what I mean? And you can look at this country's history to, to, to know that and to see examples of that over again. So th- those two things really frighten me. I think what what gives me hope to be honest with you is you know I'm 40 I'm 40 years old so I'm a bit older now. So I've seen how issues around racial justice have become mainstream in ways that wasn't the case when I was coming up. Um you know the fact that black lives matter has like widespread resonance um, in purchase, you know, and kind of like it's being championed by the NBA and the WNBA. That that to me is unheard of. Like I, I would have never thought that would be the case years ago. Um, so stuff like that makes me optimistic. Um, you know, seeing people like you doing the work that you do makes me optimistic. Um, you know, people being, I think for me, what makes me the most optimistic is people, young people with with dissident voices, being entrepreneurial about their voice makes me mm. very optimistic. Because we don't need like regular mainstream media channels to get our voice out anymore, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And so, so when I see people win in that way, that makes me very hopeful. That's great. You you made a very really amazing point about people being well read and educated, and and that's definitely something that I I've always kind of like I, I haven't quite connected to what I'm what I'm seeing right now. I'm seeing a lot of big voices. I'm seeing I guess now I'm seeing more of people that want to be seen. I'm seeing people that that feel like this is something that will bring them something. You know, I don't want to get too into that. But <laughs> <laughs> your social media is, you know, you have a huge presence, very powerful page, super informed. This is where I go to, and I know a lot of people that go to your page and you're like, you know, this is the source. How much work goes into that? And how do you feel? Like, what, what's what's going on with you behind all that you're posting and how much research goes into that? 
Um, so, you know, I, I, I try to interweave, you know, social media into my regular daily life as best I can. Like, you know, for me, I kind of view it more like as, as a compliment. Like, I don't, like, I don't, how, how do I, I'm not like really intentional about it in ways that um, might, 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 might look like is the case. So for instance, if I'm reading, like if I'm reading this book today, and I read something really interesting about surveillance of um, Uyghur Muslims, I'll make a post about that. So I try to integrate the posts that I talk about um, into like the things that I'm thinking about, on, you know, on a daily basis, but also issues that are issues that are relevant and pressing that mainstream media isn't picking up on, right? So for me, there, there's a set of issues that I, I feel very strongly about. Um, the Uyghur crisis, for instance, being one of them. Um, you know, the experience of Muslims in, in countries that don't get a lot of media coverage, India, Kashmir, mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. instance, what's um, what's happening in those places. Um, I'm very intentional about that, perhaps, because I'm trying to fill voids that, um, you know, other voices and other media outlets don't address for whatever reason. Um, and one of the reasons is because there's, there's costs associated with it, right? Like, I think that um, you know, look, look, the fact is this, right? Like, I'm not going to get invited to speak at certain places because I'm critical of China. Um, I'm not going to get certain job opportunities because I'm critical of Israel. Um, I've been denied <laughs> interviews at specific universities. Hmm. I've been disinvited from giving talks from some countries because I've been critical of the UAE and of Saudi Arabia. Um, so I, I, I guess for me, like, I try to be as honest with the issues that I address on social media and also fill in holes that other people might not want to touch because of the costs associated with them. If that, if that makes any sense. It, it definitely makes sense. And it's, it's something that I see it's all in one place that we can all, like I said, it's all very accessible, which, which is what I appreciate. What should we all be paying attention to at the moment? What do you want to get out there? Like what is what is the grand post? <laughs> you know there there is no there is no grand post. I think I think for me, like I'll I'll be honest. Like I'm I'm at this point now where, I, like I'm I'm trying to be more. I guess I'm trying to be more like intentional about putting up positive stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, because a lot of the stuff that I care about and that I think about is is very daunting and it can be very negative and it can suck the energy out the room mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and people mm -hmm. can turn away from it. Right. We all have like different thresholds where we get exhausted, right. Where we're like, I'm sick of hearing about that. I need to move out, you know, move on about my day and be around some like bright and positive stuff. We're all human beings. It's funny. Right. I think when people, when people meet me, they expect like this super serious dude, but I'm like kind of a, a lighthearted, like to have fun kind of guy. So I think for me, like one thing I'm very mindful mindful of is to try to talk about stories and, and, and things that are uplifting um, because it gets, and I've had good friends, like, do, do you know Tone Trump, the rapper? No, who's that? <laughs> he's, a, he's a Philly rapper. He's a Muslim rapper out of <laughs> oh, Philly. Oh, really? A really good brother. You should actually interview him. Oh, he's, cool. He's a, oh. Yeah, he's, Send a, he's, me a great, his he's also link. an activist. I'll check huh? it out. Send me a link. I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll yeah. connect you with him. He told me when he first met me, he's like, man, can you, he's like, brother, could you do me a favor and stop making it look like Muslims are being beaten up and victimized? 
yeah. <laughs> he's like, you need to put out put out stories sometimes where we look strong and we look, yeah. um, you know, defiant and we look like we're we're doing good things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was speaking and- to a racial trauma psychologist, and one of her things she always said like, "Black joy is a form of resistance," and I, so is so is Muslim joy. <laughs> You know, so so is a happy Muslim. Yeah. That's that's letting people know that, you know, this is this is putting another face on it. So that's yeah. As you were saying. Yeah, so I'm trying to be more like, you know, conscious of doing that, especially because I mean, like young folks are looking at my page. If you're an 18, 19 year old kid and you're still, you know, sort of you're not fully actualized and you're trying to like, you know, form and define an identity and be proud, mm-hmm. like it's to see stories of like Muhammad Salah or Khabib, you know, winning a fight or, you know, a Muslim athlete or a Muslim uh, professional doing a great thing. Like those, those stories can be really powerful and transformative for young people. So I think for me, th- that is kind of the grand post to show that we have a lot of concerns, but Alhamdulillah, there's also reason for us to be, um, you know, optimistic as well. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that that's perfect. And it's it's just very well rounded all together. How about you? What, what What's your grand post? I saw you posted Ooh. about, of, uh, I think Little Wayne sold the masters to Young Money. Oh, in my stories. Yeah, <laughs> that that's where I get a little bit more ratchet. The stories. My grand post is, I guess it's similar to, to what you're saying. Something that that I guess would bother used to bother me a little bit was. I would get like, you know, an onslaught of I don't want to say white liberals, but I was the white liberals that I guess would follow me and expect like I can tell they expect kind of like a somebody to kind of reaffirm the the Trump, the anti-Trump stuff. And, you know, just kind of a, a lot of black militancy and just like you can tell by the pattern in which they're responding to your posts and stuff like that, that this is kind of what they expect of you. And it's kind of being compared or being thrown into a whole like mix of other black speakers, you know, that that might be, you know, more collegiate and and educated than me. And I'm just here just kind of voicing my opinions and stuff like that. But also just to kind of make it clear that, you know, I am a multifaceted woman, you know, my 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 handle is stupid black girl. <laughs> it's not only because I am responding to to the system that has denigrated and mansplained itself to me, but it's also a resistance to, to just it's also me kind of like questioning myself and, and being comfortable enough to ask, am I stupid at this moment? So it's, it's to me, my grand post is 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 some something that is more multifaceted. It's it, the grand post is me on a beach chilling, all right? <laughs> getting <laughs> getting some sun because, you know, I, I definitely I definitely need some sun. So it's definitely random and removed from the moment. But Let me let me ask you this. Do you do you feel do you feel like caric- do you sometimes feel like caricatured and confined by your following? Like you have to speak on specific issues that you're following you know, expects you to speak on? No. And how do you deal with that? W- which is interesting because I respond and I speak based on everything that I have a very strong emotion to. And a lot of it just comes to me responding to, to just things that are super outrageous to me. I never thought of myself as a caricature. Mm. Hmm. Do you think of me as a caricature? 
No, not you. But the reason I ask you that is because a, a lot, you know, I do at times, right? So for, for me, whenever I get invited to do a media request or invited to speak, people only expect me. To, they can almost uh, anticipate I see what answers you're saying. to things. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. You know what saying. I mean? Like they, they uh, have like these very rigid boundaries for the stuff yeah. that they want to talk about. And if I step out of that, they might be disappointed or they might yeah. be like, like they kind of view you almost like a product. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the perfect word. And that's exactly what it is. I'm actually going through something right now that has to do with me being a product and just kind of feeling like stupid black girl and, and what I am and what I represent is a moment of myself and not a totality of myself. And yeah, I I did have an interview once with someone who was asking me about how do you feel about this and how do you feel about that? There's this one black actor, uh, the guy who was in Get Out. I forgot his name, the African guy. He made a comment about he was just tired of answering the race questions all the time. You know, Daniel, Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He said he was just tired of answering the race question so much. So, yeah. I think that that's very important. That's a very important point, you know, and accurate when using the word caricature. It's it's something that you wouldn't expect from these people because, you you know, they they portray themselves as being very woke. But it is very confining in, in the way that they are woke because they are seeing you very one dimensionally and they're not really seeing you as I'm not trying to go in, but I guess something other than something that can kind of reaffirm and, and make them feel better about themselves. It's like, is this for me or is this like, who is this for? You know, the artist from New York, Jean-Michel Basquiat, he used to always get angry when they asked him, asked him questions about how do you feel about being the most famous Black artist? And he would respond, why can't I just be? Yeah. Which is, you know, it's it, which which is why, why I hate this whole language of brand and branding around an influencer, around social media presence because it, it constricts the the realm of possibilities in which you can engage in. You know, I'm, I'm known for Islamophobia and you're known for addressing specific issues, but as soon as you step out and do something that is a new challenge or that shows any kind of growth or progress, you're stigmatized for it. It's, it's weird. It's almost kind of like you're reading my mind and, and something that's going on with me right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually a dilemma that I was having in my head. It's, yeah. it's about me being creative. I'm a creative person, you know, stupid black girl. And, and all of that is, is something that's created by Aisha, Aisha Redux, who, who will create many things. And even before I wrote the book, which is interesting, I had this one guy who had interviewed me. He, he loved my, you know, he loved my social media. He was a big, you know, he interviewed me on my on his like on his podcast and stuff like that. And he was an editor or something. And I told him that I was writing a book and I would be deleting my social media for eight months to focus on my book. And he had a meltdown. He had a meltdown and he told me he was like, you're writing a book, then what's the, if you're deleting your social media, what's the point of even having, you know, your interview? And he took the interview down and then he like, you know, he's like, no one's gonna, like he basically told me writing the book was a bad idea and like writing a book is just a, such a long shot. And 
He said all these discouraging things. And then as soon as I decided to write the book, like I, I found a publisher like three months later. OK. And the whole shit just happened. I'm, and then he even blocked me like he was super upset at this progression. So like, yeah, this is definitely something that I definitely want to get into. Like you just kind of opened up this whole thing. And the fact that you were just so precise about it means that and something that you experience yourself. It's something that that definitely needs to be called out, dealing with people that call themselves allies, but being having the inability to see us as more than these these props and, and caricatures. And it's also very limiting to it's, it's limiting to our potential. And I don't know if that has to do with the fact that they always want to have an upper hand and a control if that's kind of like some subconscious thing that comes with the entitlement of always having to have control and us expanding what it means to them and their identity as well. Something that they have to reckon with that they're not reckoning with. It's, it's yeah. an, it's an economic, you know, there's a great article, Aisha, you sh it's called racial capitalism um, by uh, a woman named Nancy Leong. It's a brilliant piece. And she, she talks about how, um, Racial beings, right? Like you, you and I, are only we're, we're only as useful to these um, corporations, these institutions of power, in ways that we can sort of advance their political and economic bottom line, right? Mm. So, if Islamophobia is the hot topic of the day, right, my phone's going to be ringing, um, you know, off the chain, mm -hmm. right? But it's not like these it's not like these quote unquote allies care about the issues or care about us as human beings. They only care about us in ways that we're, we're tools that advance their interests. Wow. I guess you you kind of you just kind of confirmed a lot of things. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to name this podcast Cold Chinese Food instead of Stupid Black Girl Podcast or like Go Black Girl Go. Because, I mean, I wanted to to tap into another part of me that had to do with my New York culture, my New York identity and something that I feel was very important that wasn't necessarily about race. Me being a New Yorker and, and you know, you having your experience. This is a conversation to me that that is, is very urban and very city and very relevant to that. Thanks for that. <laughs> No, no, I mean, you know, I, 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 I know I'm talking too much and I apologize. Oh, no, please, no. But, but, you know, in some ways, like like realizing that, like, teaches us how to play the game in ways that are sustainable for people. Please, like how, how should how should I play the game now? Please, how should how, how do you move accordingly when you when you're in this predicament of caricature and, and a racial being? I think for me, like the most important thing has 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 been learning how to say no. Okay. You know what I mean? Like I grew up, I'll be honest, I grew up poor, right? Mm -hmm. So alhamdulillah, like I'm at a position now that I never dreamt I'd be in when I was young, right? So it was hard to say no when folks are giving you opportunities that you would have never dreamed of as a kid and like giving you uh, honorarium checks, picking, you know, getting picked up in black cars and getting flown to places. But learning how to say no is very powerful uh, because it just, it, it, it helps you understand that you are not just a brand that can be accessed whenever like this quote unquote master beckons you. You know ah. what I mean? 
in that it's very easy for us. And what I'm what I'm talking to you about is stuff that I that I'm struggling with now mm-hmm, still, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's very easy for us to get caught up in like the, the traps of you know social media visibility and the quasi fame that comes along with that. But there's real cost to that, right? I mean, you're somebody who cares about um, a range of issues, whether it be, you know, issues tied to race, that's one dimension, whether it be issues tied to pop culture. I'm somebody who cares deeply about sports and music and, and things that aren't in my quote unquote Islamophobia wheelhouse. And the more we chase the money and the visibility in uh, the material stuff, the more it takes us away from, you know, who we authentically are. Um, and so for me, knowing how, knowing, learning how to say no has been the most important thing. Bingo. Saying no. For me, it just kind of made me angry. (laughs) It made me angry, like super angry. So I think it's really interesting that you brought this up because this was actually a thing. This is a thing that was that had entered my life and it just just kind of mounting and coming together and and me kind of like creating this podcast the way I wanted to. Well, let me know, inshallah, how I can be supportive and spread word of it and you know, however I can be of help, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for everything. No, no. And thank you for the work that you do. And, you know, I, I turn to your page and I'm trying to be hip. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Same here. No, but uh, but yeah, thanks again for having me. And um, yeah, please, you know, keep in touch if I can ever be on again or spread word for the podcast. Yeah. Make it make it called uh halal Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should call it that this episode. <laughs> that seems to work. Cold. Cold. Yeah. Aisha, so yeah. bright.